The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions iHeartMedia, or their employees. But I had this group of women, and I was like, this is the thing that we need. I haven't mm-hmm, been able mm-hmm. to help any of us, our limiting beliefs and our stumbling yeah. blocks. I felt very good about bringing what I learned to them. And when I went to Nexium, I didn't know about the financial opportunity. That wasn't offered to me. It was, this is for my personal growth. And then once I took it, it's like, oh, you can take it, and you can bring two people and get your money back. And if you bring six people, you can earn a commission, and that's how you can pay for your next courses. Mm-hmm. And it kind of built from there. And then it was like, wow, I can make more money than I ever did in acting, and right. I can change the world, and why wouldn't I get paid for right. helping people grow? Every cult is a narcissistic relationship. Let's just start there. Earlier this season, we talked with Mark Vicente about his experience in Nexium, a self-improvement program that ended up being something far more sinister and harmful. Nexium, like many cult-like organizations, are often comprised of well-intentioned people who are drawn to the teachings of the organization and who genuinely believe that they were making the world a better place and experiencing meaningful change within themselves. 
In the next two episodes, we are going to hear from Sarah Edmondson, who played a central role in the documentary The Vow as a whistleblower who facilitated the dismantling of Nexium. Sarah was branded as part of DOS, as in Sarah's skin was burned with a brand. DOS was a sub-organization within Nexium, And in the years that would follow, teachings that she believed in, friendships she trusted, and her life's work for over 12 years was dismantled, as well as having to live with the traumatic impact of being a part of such an abusive organization. It was gaslighting at the highest degree. Sarah also wrote a memoir about her experience entitled Scarred, The True Story of How I Escaped Nexium, The Cult That Bound My Life. And she and her husband, Nippy, also co-host their hit podcast, A Little Bit Culty. In this episode, we are going to hear the experience of Nexium from the perspective of a woman who is in it and understand how insidious and gradual the process of indoctrination can be, whether you are in a cult or in any kind of toxic relationship. Sarah, it's so wonderful to see you and have you sitting right here. I've been on a little bit culty, which was one of my very most favorite podcasts to have ever, oh, ever been on. I love talking with you <laughs> and Nippy, and it was both fun, but also we were able to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So your your podcast is amazing. Your book that's called Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. It's not the usual memoir. I think for us, we've all heard the story of Nexium. We've heard it through The Vow. We've heard it through news reports. And I think I even approach your book thing, I'm going to read this again. And then I read it and it was absolutely extraordinary to me to read your experience as a woman within a system like this. And so, and we'll be revisiting parts of that, but everyone needs to read this book if they have any interest in coercive control, gaslighting, exploitation, even if you've never been near a cult, interested in a cult. What happened to all of you is something that happens in any toxic system. It just happened to be organized in that structure. So I can't tell you how happy I am to have you here. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Where I want to start with and almost start with what one of the critiques from the world is and what you beautifully sort of lay out in the book. So many people looked at the story of Nexium and said, what were these people thinking? Mm. What were they doing? Why were they spending all this money on this? Um, some people say, why didn't they just get therapy? I mean, there were so many critiques leveled. And when I read your book, I finally got it. If you could break down for us this journey into a system, because obviously you didn't sign up saying, oh, exploitative organization, (laughs) sign me up, right? Right. Put your initials on my body. Yeah, great. great. Super. You Mm -hmm. know, confuse me and gaslight me and manipulate me and destroy my friends' lives. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's that's (laughs) not what you wanted. Something drew you into this Mm -hmm. and hooked you into this. And I would argue there was a healthy and an unhealthy part of that. Yeah. Can we start with the healthy part of what drew you into Nexium and what that part of your journey was like? Absolutely. So the healthy part, I think, comes from my core values. And a lot of that came from my parents and how I was raised in terms of wanting to leave the world a better place and you know, values around leadership and social change and justice and, and those kinds of things. And being part of a community and meaning and purpose. And those things that drove me originally to become an actor, which was sort of 
falling flat in my mid-20s as, as a meaningful career. So that was one thing that was going on. My boyfriend at the time, now keep in mind this is 2005, so this is not now <laughs> the golden age of cult awareness. So this is a different <laughs> era. It's a lot of personal development. My parents were also in the mental health field. My dad's a school counselor. My mom's a therapist. I've always been a seeker. I've always been interested in workshops and bettering myself. And I was doing the artist way at the time and, mm. and trying to be more creative and have the life that I wanted. All those things. And I, my boyfriend and I met Mark Vicente, who I know you know well. Mm-hmm. I know well, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I met him at a film festival, and I had seen What the Bleep Do We Know, and mm-hmm. I felt really moved by that film. Uh, I felt like this was, I wanted to make media that shifted consciousness. And so when I, when I had the opportunity to meet him at this film festival, that was one of the things that mm-hmm. drew me in, is this idea of, of being connected with other spiritual people and doing something more meaningful. Ultimately, what it was, I think, the healthy part was being a part of something bigger than myself, being a part of this community of like-minded humanitarians, which is hard for me not to roll my eyes, knowing what I know now, but putting myself back mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. It's very idealistic, and I and I wanted to be aligned with somebody like Mark. He was, it was, he was doing what I wanted to do, and mm-hmm. he sort of invited me into the this concept of this of this community, which sounded great. The unhealthy part, if you mind me jumping to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I think when I look, I've had to do a lot of self-reflection and I look back at my life. I've always struggled to fit in. Mm -hmm. I was nerdy in high school. I was never a popular kid. And like the the community is the positive way of saying it. But like the negative side is that like I wanted belonging and Mm -hmm. I wanted to feel also special. I think one of the things that really hooked me was the once I once I did my first five day was this idea of the stripe path mm-hmm. and the martial arts system of growth, mm-hmm. which in the in the nature of acting, where like you you know you can do all the things and not get the part. Here's what was laid out to me and promised to be a measurable system of growth where you could do X Y Z, you get your next stripe, you get your next promotion, and it happened that way for a while. And I really it did good things for my I say in quotes because this is a Nexium term. It helped me with my self esteem. I know that's a word in English. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but it's also like a big part of the foundational concepts. We're trying to raise your self-esteem and feel good about yourself, not separate from whether or not you had the acting job or not, like an internal sense of self-esteem, not mm-hmm. esteem. And that was the good part of it. But the bad part of it, it was it tapped into my my motivation to like get to the next level and like somehow that I would be better if I got mm-hmm. to the next thing, which was it it just was and it's never ending. You know, like yeah, of course. Yeah, you can't graduate from these programs, which is, you know, obviously a huge red flag that I know now. You know, one thing, again, and having had the privilege of reading the book, Mm -hmm. was, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term, there was an almost obsessive zeal you brought. You were working, it felt like, around the clock. Yes. It wasn't just that originally you went to their program, Mm -hmm. you know, that market introduced it to you, you went to it, you found it really beneficial, Mm -hmm. because there was something interesting happening for you. You're doing it. And other areas of your life Mm -hmm. were starting to improve, too. You were making money in a way you hadn't before. You were feeling much, you were feeling very aligned. That's the only way I could could put it. And you just worked and worked. And yet at the same time, you were working really hard, but it also felt like, you know, you'd work hard just to put it all back in. You'd make Mm -hmm. all this money just Mm -hmm. to put it all back in to start actually really building out the programs and the Pacific Northwest and in Vancouver mm-hmm. where you lived. And so there was this this almost frenzied, yes. obsessive feel to that. Yes. Is that who you always were? Um, I think it's a tendency that I think there were so many naysayers around me saying like, what is this? And mm-hmm. who are these people? It's similar 
drive to what caused me to be an actor. It's like, I can prove myself. Like, mm-hmm, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sh- prove them wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the only, I was mm-hmm. the only center owner that didn't come from, like, millions. Mm-hmm. All the other center owners came from people who had inherited wealth. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I can do this. And, and it's almost like an underdog proving themselves mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I get into a frenzy to do that and work, 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 work. And that's definitely was a major problem because I was so overworked. I didn't see the red flags. Sarah's experience of this obsessive zeal, working all the time, while it happened for her in an organizational setting, this is something that also happens in red flag-filled narcissistic relationships. People want to make these relationships keep working. They want to prove themselves, keep the good days going. And there's almost a frenzy people can have, a sort of, I am going to make this work even if I have to put in superhuman effort. Right, and though the overworking was almost normalized, there was certainly no one around you in the Nexium organization telling you to engage in self-care. No. If anything... That would have been indulgent. Right, that would have... Exactly, that would have been indulgent. And it was... Anytime you would do anything, and that was the languaging of Nexium was so interesting. Anytime you would do something to individuate, yeah. right? To be, to sort of do what was right for you, even if you were still adhering to a lot of what they were teaching you, anything that was about Sarah and not Sarah embedded within the organization, mm-hmm. that would be shamed using all kinds of technical terminology. Always. And it was very subtle and tacit and gentle. It wasn't overt and angry mm-hmm. and punishing. It would be something like if I was going to go to, let's say, choose a best my best friend's wedding. When I was choosing between going to her wedding and attending an EM tech training that I needed to get to Proctor, they'd say something like, well, so you're choosing a relationship with someone who doesn't even support your growth mm. over your actual growth? Or when they tried to get me to move to Albany over and over and over again, I... I loved my home in Vancouver, and they say, your attachment, can you see how your attachment to materialism and comfort is stopping you from your your true growth, your true potential? Like, it would be a very gentle, loving tone, not, not angry. So I thought I was being supported. I just wanted to make everyone clear on what an EM is. Sarah's using the term EM, which is a Nexium term, which stands for Exploration of Meaning. Moments where a person's motivations were unpacked, and over time, it became clear they were unpacked in a rather shaming, gaslighting way. It's like being in a group where if you did something that the people in charge didn't like, they would subject the person to this kind of a process. Did it ever start to strike you as these incidents piled up when you were still in sort of the heyday Mm -hmm. of actually appreciating what was happening in Nexium, that every one of these suggestions, you're choosing someone who doesn't support your growth, you are, you know, you don't want to move here, have your true potential, that the outcome of every one of those decisions they were pushing for would benefit them. It didn't. No, because mm -hmm. it's so much of the mission, and it's even in the video of the last episode where Nancy says, this is a mission. It's not you're dedicating yourself to Keith or dedicating yourself to Nancy. This is a commitment to you and your growth. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that was the premise. ESP is not for anyone else. It's for you. I mean, trying to wrap my head around it now, it obviously makes no sense. The mission was your growth. Here, Sarah uses the term ESP, 
which stands for Executive Success Program. Nobody just opens a cult in an office park one day. The Executive Success Program was a program and curriculum that Keith Raniere and Nancy Salzman were peddling as a program to tap and harness the potential within people, and that would call people out on the thoughts and beliefs that were blocking them from success. ESP is what Sarah signed up for with a goal of personal development and growth. Right. Your your growth and it's, it's, it is really interesting. You're right. It is. It, it is a really mind F word yeah. because they were almost selling individuation mm-hmm. when they were doing the opposite. Yes. Yes. Because what we know in any narcissistic structure, mm-hmm. and whether that's a family, whether that's a couple, whether that's a workplace, and whether that's an organization like you were in, the goal when we're trying to help someone grow out of that space mm-hmm. and heal is to foster individuation, right. a self outside of that. And that you can have a relationship with someone but not subjugate yourself. I mean, right. that's, that's, that's sort of the core principle there, right? right? And Nexium found a really, really kind of well-marketed, slick way of subjugation, yes. which I've actually never really seen done so skillfully well, in it, my career. It's so ironic because this is actually a module that they taught is going from independence to interdependence, looking at the child-parent relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a model he stole from somewhere. somewhere. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's not his. And they really did talk about how it was really not good to be dependent on anything, even to the point of like, that's why we didn't drink. Mm-hmm, or do mm-hmm, drugs. Mm-hmm. There was one inconsistency that I saw throughout was that Nancy was super dependent on coffee. Mm. And they called her the energizer by the way. And she, go, she, I mean, she was the, our role model for that frenzy mm-hmm. as well. That she was go, 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 never rest. And that was one of the very first sort of ahas as, mm-hmm. I, as I escaped where I recognized that was a huge inconsistency is that we weren't supposed to be dependent on anything outside of ourselves to be happy. Like that's mm-hmm. an attachment. You have to work your attachments. Mm-hmm. But we're all totally dependent on the organization and on the Correct. leadership <laughs> to Correct. make decisions. Correct. And I see that clearly with the people who are still loyal. Mm-hmm. For your listeners who don't know this, there are still people that follow Keith. They're like just drown. They don't know what to do with themselves because they don't. They're they have nothing to plug into, and they're just Correct. They're, yeah, right. Their dependency mm-hmm. and and they're holding on to it and won't let it go. What you're talking about is the dependency on something outside of someone that is excessive and that one derives their self-esteem from and are incapable of holding space for other perspectives and seeing themselves as an individual out of there. A lot of that is a definition of codependency, where the self-esteem is completely linked into a structure outside of someone. So what, you know, Nexium was preaching simultaneously was codependency and independence, which are completely incompatible states. So Mm -hmm. there was a chronic state of confusion. Yes. You know, for anyone. For anyone. That that Mm -hmm. was confusing. And the other majorly confusing part was that it was a success program. I didn't join Nexium. I joined executive success programs. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea was this goals program to help you achieve what you want to achieve in the world. Mm -hmm. We had these classes about your infinity goals and your long-term goals and your short-term goals. And I was achieving them. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. then I was also getting in trouble for having Mm -hmm. these attachments. And I Mm -hmm. couldn't wrap my head around like all the people that were around Keith seemed to have given up their goals mm. and, and their attachments and now we're living in Albany and seemed really miserable and thin and I just didn't understand. <laughs> and like, And I think that's actually what saved me is that I refused mm-hmm. to give up my goals and I always had one foot out in reality. Mm-hmm. 
Isolation is an essential dynamic in all toxic relationships. Whether it is an organization or program or an individual, the framing is often you are too attached to other things, other people, and the person is left feeling that the only way forward is to detach from important relationships outside of the toxic structure. Isolation is necessary if a person or a group is going to try to control another person. And ESP and Nexium were framing these as attachments that needed to be rejected. And then real commitment meant that you move to their center of operations in Albany, isolating people further. Sarah's resistance to this is a major protective factor that did save you, is that, you know, you did have that foot in reality. Mm. By your own description, you said you've come from a happy family. You yes. You respect your parents, you admire your parents. That that helps. Yes. That definitely creates a sort of a, a one piece of resilience bedrock, even mm-hmm. when this stuff is floating around you. Mm-hmm. And you went in, and I think that this is what's important for listeners to hear, you went in motivated by personal growth. Yeah. That was the motivation and community Mm -hmm. and meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. Those are what any therapist would be sort of extolling as virtues for an individual. So Mm -hmm. it's not some sort of sinister vision Mm -hmm. that was bringing you, or it sounds like anybody, into executive success Mm -hmm. programs. They were just, they were were trying to better themselves, and this seemed like a way to do that. And and that's understandable. Mm -hmm. How did you view Keith Raniere mm-hmm. when you met him? Because I think that he's such a central figure in this. And when we heard Mark Vicente, like you said, has been on this podcast, the reaction and the interaction with this man mm-hmm. is going to be very different. And I want to hear from a woman mm-hmm. who's had an interaction with this man because I found him repulsive in yeah. every way, shape, and form, from every photo to every word to every, the sound of his voice. Obviously, I had already heard the story. Right. But from the beginning, you come into executive success programs. Mark is saying that it's really, you know, it's helped him. You admired him. Mm-hmm. You come in. What was that first <laughs> exposure to this man like? So the first exposure, now listen, this, my, my arc with Keith changed a lot over the 12 years. Mm-hmm. But my first exposure was after I'd taken a five-day mm-hmm. in Vancouver and then an 11-day in Albany where before and after every class, we're saying, thank you, Vanguard. Mm. Thank you, Vanguard. And the the women who I'm, I grow to respect are what we call like the Greek chorus. They're singing mm-hmm. his praises. They're putting him on a pedestal, talking about this, how this man changed mm-hmm. their lives. And by the time I'd finished that curriculum, I mean, I was hooked into the concepts that were being sold to me. I was... I was, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring it to Canada. I totally respected this man before I even met him is in terms of this is the brain that created this technology, quote, unquote. But when I met him, I definitely was very underwhelmed. I thought he was schlubby and not put together. I'm a put together person to the point of being like borderline OCD. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so I'm looking at him going, uh, but... Anytime there was a forum where Keith spoke for the first time to new people like Vanguard Week or if there were, like he did something at volleyball, Nancy would always debrief the forum. Mm-hmm. And she would always say, wasn't he amazing? Mm. You know, wasn't he just incredible? And somebody new would always put up their hand and say, it's so weird because like he just seems so normal. Like he uh. just seems like a just a guy. And mm-hmm. she would spin that as... Isn't that incredible that he just brings himself to our level Mm. and like makes himself so accessible? That was the spin. He is a genius, but he's 
just a volleyball playing nerd, you know, the sort of humble thing. Right? Yes, and and I and I was actually struck, you know, even when Mark said he's the smartest guy, and I I've listened to a lot of him trying mm-hmm. to understand this, and kind of mm-hmm. underwhelmed, like I, yeah. nothing he was saying seemed particularly smart. Like I think a yeah. really solid second year grad student would know the yes. things he knew. I think like I haven't seen anything in any of the documentaries that would show like the full two hour forum, right? So right. that would be boring for everybody. But there were times when a forum would lay out a bunch of concepts that seemed profound, and mm-hmm. a lot of it seemed mm-hmm. like was over my head, but everyone else is smiling and nodding, mm-hmm. so I'm thinking, I'm not smart enough for this, or I'm mm-hmm. missing it. I found out later that most people felt the same way. Correct. Because it was word salad. And word salad is a classical tool of anybody who actually doesn't know what they're talking right. about, but grandiosely must believes they're some sort of genius or yes. messiah or whatever they believe, or as it were, vanguard. Did that did that set off any red flags for you that have to call another human being by some sort of bizarre 100%. title? 100%. I mean, all the things that happened on day one of the five-day, calling mm-hmm. vanguard, wearing sashes, bowing, all the rules and rituals mm-hmm. were massive red flags for me. Mm-hmm. But they had very smartly said, right from the beginning— you're here to work. You're here to work your stuff. That's going to mm-hmm. be uncomfortable. You agree when you work. When you're working on your issues. That's we all agree. Yes, all successful people want to know their limitations. Yes, we agree. So we've agreed to be that successful people know their limitations. Mm-hmm. We've agreed that our limitations are going to be uncomfortable, and we're going to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So when we're uncomfortable, we have the urge to leave. We agree to stay in the room and talk it through with a coach. Mm-hmm. So. From the beginning, I'm agreeing to ignore yes. <laughs> my red flags because I'm a successful person and I work. I want to work through my issues. So when I'm feeling like, eh, that we're calling this guy Vanguard that I've never met, and then they say something before I can even put up my hand, some people feel uncomfortable with this if they have suppressive tendencies or mm. if they have some authority issues. So then I don't want to put up my hand and admit that I'm now a suppressive person. All I know is that I want to be a good girl, which is also one of my unhealthy traits, right? I've learned about myself that I'm outwardly obedient Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. inwardly disobedient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and now I'm I'm not I'm not a sheep anymore. And which is a that's been a big part of my healing journey. But at this time, there's nine people in our class. This is not a hundred person seminar. There's nine students and probably just as many, if not more, coaches. So we were being washed. We're like, everyone's looking at our every move. I'm not going to be like, what's with this sash craziness? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, hmm. okay. One of the things they said also is when you go to someone's home and they ask you to take off your shoes, you take off your shoes yeah. because it's their home. And there, a lot of the, a lot of the rules were pitched that way. Like, this is what we do here. It's just for five days. You wear a sash. We bow to this person. Okay. I'll, I'll follow your rules. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not forever. <laughs> it's interesting you made a, you made a comment early on because I just connected those dots here too. Is that as we again you're right as we look at this through the you know through the lens of everything that happened you mm-hmm. know the idea of vanguards and bowing mm-hmm. and sashes and all of that we can see it for all the the you know the the terrible things that mm-hmm. it is. But you had even said that in some ways sort of the system of stripes and everything was resonant of martial arts. Yeah. So too is bowing and mm-hmm. sashes and belts. And yeah. So I mean, they were taking some of the iconography yeah. of something that actually has a lot of respect and rightfully yeah. so. Martial arts is actually a place of tremendous sort of focus and discipline in and of itself is actually a really great mindfulness tool, right. confidence building tool. So one would say, see that the idea of bowing to someone is built into yes. another practice. And yeah. so each one of these things that could feel troubling, just like in any toxic relationship, 
could rather quickly be justified, justified. made sense of. Yeah. And in fact, and in fact, I want to come back, I don't want to jump around too much, but you said, you know, one thing you had said about anyone who spoke, who provided a critique mm-hmm. was shut down as being someone who was suppressive. Mm-hmm. That to me was the ultimate grooming technique. Yes. Yeah. Because what they were doing was they were creating this homogeneity because mm-hmm. nobody wanted to be outed, right? The whole mm-hmm. idea was to belong. Right. And so ostracism was going to sting even more in an organization like this. And ostracism is yeah. actually one of the greatest human fears there is because once upon a time in human history to be ostracized would have been to starve to death. Yeah. You know, because you needed your community to eat and all of that. Mm. So it still remains a primal fear. So by calling people suppressive, it, when I heard that over and over, not just in The Vow, but in your book and anything else I've read, I thought, isn't this interesting? Because this happens in narcissistic families all mm. the time. Mm. If anybody speaks out or speaks up against something that doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. that child or adolescent and even adult in those family systems is told they're ungrateful, right. that they're they're a problem, that they're breaking with tradition, they're not, you know, all the things that a family would do to keep everybody in line rather than celebrating that someone's either an individual or maybe making a really good point. Right. And so that concept kept coming up over and over again. And you bring up something that, you know, we often talk about grooming in line with Mm -hmm. narcissistic relationships and toxic relationships. What we don't talk enough about is screening. Hmm. And that's a lot of what the early phase of these relationships is. In many ways, what they're trying to do is it's almost like sort of, you know, uh, casing the joint or sort of shaking down a mark. Like, Ken, is this a person I can hustle? Right. Right? Am I going to be able to get the money out of them? It's no different than anyone who's walking down the street and they're playing three-card Monty. Who really stops to play that game? That person's already a sucker, right? They think they can beat the game. And so I think that there's this screening process that happens in any of these toxic relationships of if we're already getting them to suspend their incredulity to say, okay, I can work with this whole sash and vanguard Mm -hmm. thing. They're screening people. And I have to wonder if some of those early days weren't these screens, as it were, and that you were almost sifting. And then some people would say, oh, heck no. I mean, Mm -hmm. level screens, this, you know, they might even say, and and this is interesting because in Keith's history, he had a history of multi-level marketing. They might even say, this feels pyramid-y to me. You know, and and you were doing, you were having to, you were told you had to bring new people in. Mm -hmm. And anytime I hear about somebody being told (laughs) they have to bring new people in, I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, MLM, which totally we've had Roberta Blevins on this podcast, who I know you know as well, that idea of recruitment to me, and we know MLM structures and cult structures are quite similar. My session with Sarah will continue after this break. How did it feel for you having to recruit people in? Did you believe in it so much, or did you want it to work that you're like, I'm going to do the thing they're asking so I can continue ascending into this program? Unfortunately, that was a really natural fit for me. Mm, I've, I've always I've always been somebody who brought people along on whatever it was I was doing. I was good at sales from a young age, whether it was like garage sales when I was young, and then like selling candy bars in grade 10 to raise money for the new TV. Wow. I was always... I don't know if it was my network or just how I am. I when I believe in something, I'm very even what I'm doing right now with the podcast and mm-hmm. like being a advocate for mm-hmm. cult recovery. Like mm-hmm. I, 
the loyalists right now who are still mm-hmm. loyal to Keith, I shouldn't have watched, but I watched one of their YouTube responses, and mm-hmm. I'm going to send you the link because it'll blow your mind. Please but do. One of the things is they've said, you know, Sarah was a good salesperson building it, and she's a good salesperson now with this mm-hmm. with this narrative. Like, their, their whole thing is, this is Sarah Edmondson's narrative. By the way, giving me a lot of potency, because <laughs> let's just say I'm making it up. You know, I did it for the book deal, as they said. What about all the other women? And the other thing I don't think I brought, I did this in the book because I have still have a family member involved. But before mm. I did Nexium, I was peripheral to an MLM that my uh-huh. mom had signed me up in. I'm more, I'm more public about it now because I just feel like it, I, it's, it's mm-hmm. weird to not disclose it. And I did okay in it, but I'd already learned about like how to recruit. And it was a similar structure. You bring two people yep. in and you train them to bring two people in. And it was like a vitamin thing. Right. So I'd already gone through some of that sales training. So that in combination with me being so zealous about whatever I'm into... Mm-hmm. Plus, I had that women's group that I was doing the artist way with, and I was trying to, I'm not a therapist, mm-hmm. but like, you know, my parents are, mm-hmm. so I, I, I'm i always trying to like help people and counsel people casually in a way that many people find annoying. <laughs> Some people find helpful. <laughs> I've learned to ask now, would you like my advice or would you like me to just listen? But I had this group of women and I was like, this is, this is the thing that we need. Like, mm-hmm, I haven't been mm-hmm, able mm-hmm. to help any of us through our our limiting beliefs and our stumbling yeah. blocks. I felt very good about bringing this, what I learned to them. And, you know, when I went to Nexium, I didn't know about the financial opportunity or like that wasn't, that wasn't offered to me. It was, this is for my personal growth. And then once I took it, it's like, oh, you can take it and you can bring two people and get your money back. And if you bring six people, you can earn a commission and that's how you can pay for your next courses. Mm-hmm. And it kind of built from there. And then it was like, wow, I can make more money than I ever did in acting and right. I can change the world and why wouldn't I get paid for right. helping people grow? Like it was, you know, I had some challenges along the way, but if I did, I would just get them EM'd, which is your... Exploration. Yes. That was yes. my next point. Yes. This, these EMs, this idea of exploration of meaning mm-hmm. and this idea that it's your why. They're right. constantly making you look for your why. Not necessarily a bad thing, except the EMs were only applied when you were doing something that was raising friction, it seemed like, with the organization. When you weren't complying, when you weren't Mm -hmm. moving the way they wanted, it seems like that's when there would be a push for yes. these EMs. They could be used that way, but they started in the five-day, the way the way it was originally presented is you came to the five-day with like, you know, what are your goals? And mm-hmm. I want to be a better actress and I want to have a better relationship with my partner. And you you presented two things, stimulus responses that you were challenged by. Mm-hmm. And one of them that I presented was my ex-boyfriend leaving dishes in the sink and mm-hmm. basically like anything that exposed my, my pseudo-OCD, yes. right? And feeling angry that it's control issues, right? So my first EM was unhooking the stimulus, the dishes, yes. to my response. So then I've, I feel like I don't react to that anymore. What a what a what a Correct. relief, right? So now I have this impression that I can work through any reaction I have. So if I'm upset about something, an EM is then applied to work through my reaction, not there's a problem with the thing that I'm upset with. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. And that can over time cultivate a lot of self doubt. Yes. And a distorted view of the world. So you're in it. Let yeah. me go back for one minute because I think red flags or early signs mm-hmm. are so important. If you were to sort of say, what were the first few red flags that you saw that that you still pushed mm-hmm. beyond, but what were the red flags that now you say that really was, yeah. that was the thing? And this is such a good question, and I wish that I had had the education I have now back mm-hmm, then because obviously mm-hmm. I would have made very different decisions. But the very first red flag was the pressure to even sign up. Mm-hmm. When I met Mark, and it wasn't him because he wasn't a salesperson yet, 
it was somebody else who was running around with an application and saying, you know, you got to get your 48-hour discount. Knowing what I know now, I would say, I, I feel like you're pressuring me. And if I really want to do this, it'll still be here down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I would say. First red flag. Then getting to the train. Even before I got to the training, I tried to get my money back because I changed mm-hmm. my mind. And I got gaslit slash peer pressured slash manipulated to believe that this was like the only thing that was going to change my life. Mm-hmm. Second red flag. Third red flag, getting to the training and all the things we've talked about. Mm-hmm. The sashes, edifying this this person I'd never met. Nancy's eyebrows and her power, the power suit. Like, there's just the whole thing. I mean, I'm joking, but like the whole mm-hmm. thing was so cheesy. Mm-hmm. It was cheesy. so tacky. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. It wasn't that was something I had to like overlook and overlook even for the 12 years when I really loved it. I'd have to say to people that I, and there were some people I wouldn't even bring in because I knew that they wouldn't be able, mm, like if I mm. found it cheesy and tacky, they wouldn't <laughs> be able to see past it. So then I just didn't even tell them. You know what I mean? So those red flags to me are interesting because those are almost what I would call lifey red flags. Yes. And what I mean by that is a high pressure sales technique. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone's doing that much of a high pressure sale on you, it means you're probably paying too much for something that isn't worth it, right? Yes. You know, if the car guy's chasing you around the dealership, I'm like, peace. I could they, now I know what I'm dealing with and I'm gonna be able to find this better, cheaper, yes. whatever. Yeah. So that was that sort of sales pressure thing. Mm-hmm. And then it was sort of said the cheesy part, mm-hmm. right? Like, do I really want to be at this sort of cheesy thing? Mm-hmm. When did the red flags for you transform from these more sort of life red flags Mm -hmm. into something that kind of left you more sort of unsettled red flags. The red flags that kind of sit, Mm -hmm. that kind of give you that sort of feel, a little bit of a a very uncomfortable, maybe even hairs on the back of your neck red flags. That's a good question. I didn't get those, I didn't get those in the five day. Mm -hmm. So early on, no. No, Mm -hmm. no. The things that were more unsettling, I mean, Albany in general, just the whole setting, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. intuitively felt... I just never wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the area. Like, mm-hmm. I, there was something mm-hmm. about it. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention, because you asked me earlier about Keith. I'm going to come back to that. I just want to say something that I forgot to say, is that it also intuitively felt very, like, I couldn't get close to him. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't want mm-hmm. to. And, and people were like, well, you know, you're in town. Why don't you, the women around him, why don't you ask Keith if he's available to go for a walk? And like, my thought was, what would I say to him? Because you were also not supposed to ask him for anything that you could ask someone else or like Google. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You don't want to waste his time. You only ask him things that only he knows. Mm-hmm. So like, well, I don't have anything to, and I kind of kept my distance. I only had two private walks with him that I can remember mm-hmm. my whole 12 years there. I never let myself get close to him. I didn't I didn't want to. And, and, and in those times, he <laughs> gave me really awful feedback that was super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I, I never did it again. There were red flags around my friend Nikki, who's still loyal to to Keith. I brought her in. Mm-hmm. So I brought Nikki in, and she moved to Albany, I think, within a couple of years. And I was I just remember thinking, why mm-hmm. are you moving to Albany? She's like, oh, Keith's going to mentor me in my acting career. And, and her career was already more successful than mine was. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, you know. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I came to visit later, maybe even a year in, and mm-hmm. I wanted to spend time with her. And she said something like, I can't because I just need to be available for Keith. Mm, okay. Right? Okay. And I was like, I had the hit. You know when you have a hit that someone's yeah. sleeping with somebody? But then I dismissed it because, A, the age difference, mm-hmm. and B, <laughs> look at Keith, and yeah. C, he's the—and also we've been told he was a, he was celibate, which is obviously so ridiculous now since we know that he's a sex right. addict. But that was like a, oh, no, can't be. You know, and I had that with other women that I, and then I, and then I remember asking around and people being like, 
He's very, he's very intimate relationships. He's mentoring people's intimate relationships, but he's celibate. So <laughs> it's just, then I would see that a lot. And I just assumed that that's how he worked with people. Right, right, right. And then later as time went on, as I asked more questions, I'd be like, how is that any of anyone's business? You know, and that sort of became the thing, like it's Keith's private life. Mm-hmm. And then I, mm-hmm. I compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. So there were yeah. things that were uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but you were also growing. And so you're you're sort of growing within this organization. Mm-hmm. You're succeeding. Mm-hmm. And also, you're not in Albany. So you're not sort of in the center storm of what right. we are seeing in all these TV programs, which you feel if you were in that day-to-day, it would have probably really unsettled you. But you're yeah. actually building out things and running them in some ways the way you want to run yes. them in Vancouver, in the Northwest. Time goes on, though, and you meet your husband Mm -hmm. even. So, I mean, there's wonderful things happening. And you're, I mean, the person would be your husband. Mm -hmm. And you get pregnant. And I have to say, I look at your story. In many ways, I think your pregnancy and your child is ultimately what saved you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it was... There was to be no other priority for you. And it was very striking to me, Sarah, how children weren't built into that structure. How many people, I I watch it, I'm like, where are the kids? I'm a mom, right? So I'm always like, I couldn't have gone to these things. I'm running around with my kids and picking them up from music practice and all of this. So, (laughs) But I saw that and I thought, that's very interesting to me. Because Mm -hmm. if somebody did have a child in any form of a healthy way, That would have almost just pulled them away from the orthodoxy of what this was. And although Nancy Saltzman was a mother, she came into this after her children were grown. And interestingly, he almost caught her at a point where a woman is almost vulnerable again as though after your children sort of grow up and out, Mm -hmm. you have a chance to sort of launch a second phase of your life. And, And so she was almost caught in this second renaissance that a a woman's life has at that time. Mm -hmm. All of that said, can you share with us what it was like at the point when things start getting sort of dark? Because what to me was always so compelling, knowing Mark now, is that Mark brought you into something that was Mm -hmm. ultimately harmful. And I've never quite understood how that might have affected a friendship between you, Mm -hmm. because at one level you might say, wow, what did you get me me into? (laughs) But you had sort of evolved so much in the process. But it was really Mark and Bonnie, who and you together was like, this something is not right here. Mm -hmm. What did things become like for you? Because basically Mm -hmm. what you were doing, just to give you context of yeah. how I approach this. Tell me. I tell people, you never want to call out a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Never. You don't go up to someone and say, yo, you're narcissistic or yo, you're toxic. It's mm-hmm. never going to work out for you. I say, once you recognize this, now you've got to run a ground game mm-hmm. to give yourself a chance to build boundaries, yeah. to start separating out, disengage, give yourself a safe space. You may not be able to leave this relationship, and I'm not saying that that's the right way, but you can't keep bringing your A-game to this, and you cannot invest your identity into this. No way, no how. That's the play. And so in some ways what was happening is you were now sensing alongside these other folks, this is not right. Something is not right. Talk to us about your life at that point. Okay. So this would have been, I mean, the last year before I left, a couple years, there were a lot of things that were happening that I couldn't reconcile. And I'm sure you've used this metaphor before, put them on the shelf, Mm -hmm. just shelved Mm -hmm. them. One of them was that Keith had created this new company, Ultima, that had like an acting program, The Mm -hmm. Source, 
the knife, which was for media, ethical media, and a number of other companies. And and to do that, he pulled basically my staff from Vancouver, like 80% of my staff, to come to Albany and build these new companies. And it was mm-hmm. an opportunity to for people to be entrepreneurs and be mentored by Keith directly, blah, blah, blah. That was a very challenging for me. And you're you're right. I did run my center the way that I wanted to. I'd like to say that I took the good of it mm-hmm. and had this little community. Not to say that there wasn't bad things, but ultimately, I even got in trouble, by the way, for mm-hmm. Nancy who came once and she's like, there's not enough tribute for Keith and I here. They're, they're not, people don't even like know who I am enough. Like oh she didn't, she wasn't adored enough. Yeah. So like a lot of that stuff just rubbed me the wrong way and I, I just did it my own way. Right. So Ultima was happening. I was helping to build it, but kind of reluctantly and being like, okay, guys, if you're going to go to Albany, like make sure you get it and on paper, what the contract is. Cause I, I knew I'd, many of them I lost forever. Some of them never came back. Wow. And yeah. remember too, I mean, at one point I think it's important mm-hmm. to make to Ever and Sarah's for many years, yeah. you worked for free. For, yes. For this program. Yeah. For me, like, at least four and a half years. I mean, there were th- lots of things I did for free and lots of things I got really got paid really well for. And a lot of that money went right back into mm-hmm. more trainings. And the center was incredibly expensive to run going back and forth to Albany because, as you know, I never, never moved there. But during this time, I also then stopped getting paid for some building some of those things, which didn't feel right. And when I voiced that... I was told I was being entitled, right? So, which was one of the number one negative traits of being a woman. So all of this in the backdrop is SOP is running and, Je- and Janessa is running. These are new curriculums. There was like so much training to take. We had to take SOP, we had to take Janessa, we had to take the source. I didn't take the knife because I just didn't, well, I didn't want to. Also, I, got, I had the excuse of my new baby to get me out of things at right. this point. So the, there were just things I was shelving. There was too many curriculums. I wasn't getting paid. You couldn't voice a complaint because now you're either not only suppressive, but you're, you're entitled. Right, so yeah. they're pathologizing self-advocacy. Yes. That's, that's what's happening. Yes. And again, classical play. Classical. In a narcissistic relationship. Yeah. If a person really tries to fight for themselves, advocate for themselves, make a need known. Mm-hmm. They work up the courage to make a need known. They are told, you're selfish, mm-hmm. you're entitled, you're difficult, and that, for many people, mm-hmm. is an instant shutdown. Yeah. So all of, all of that was happening, and my priorities were being shifted to my family. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like, I, I didn't really even realize that I wasn't on board anymore because I had such a big investment. You know, my rent at the center was like seven grand a month. It was a lot of money. I I was so disconnected from those things. Like, I always thought I was going to be a lifer, an Axiom lifer. This is the rest of my life. And I, th- I think that now that I've seen the vow, as Keith was ramping up, recognizing women would leave him, and he was ramping up his own... Um, you know, trying to lock down his loyalty for for the women in his life, mm-hmm. and then through them, other women. So we would always have a fresh supply of women mm-hmm. and power. Is what I, the how I see it now. That's when I got invited into DOS. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. when you got invited to DOS. So before we get into DOS, yes. which is so <laughs> so so dark, yeah. it's fascinating to me all these names: Ultima, mm-hmm. SOP, which is Society of Protectors, Jeunesse, which stands for nothing and sounds like a feminine hygiene product. And I, 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 right? I believe that he, what, what we were told, it came from the root word like gynecology, G-U-I-N. And, oh. they, and then it sounded too gynecological. Whatever. Gynecological. Yes. Right. I was like, it's kind of... So, so yeah. then he made it Janess, Janess. Like, and the, ne- the Ness of the 
Jay. of the woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> That's how it was pitched to us at the time. Interesting, because I was, I was yeah. like, yeah, feminine hygiene yeah. is what jumped out at me. Sounds but like, like all these names, this is what you see, though, mm-hmm. in any kind of toxic organization is this sort of these, these secret handshakes and names and anything that almost isolates it rather than like a men's group mm-hmm. or women's empowerment mm-hmm. group. No, no, no. It had to have all these code names, yeah. which actually creates a very different kind of and a more intense kind of a buy-in and yeah. a sense that you're in something, quote-unquote, special. Special. No, there was definitely yeah. a, the mm-hmm. whole time, and this is something that I'm sure you can see from a mile away that I couldn't see at the time, is just the collective ego of the group. Correct. Like the, you know, the the specialness, the eliteness that we, and this is something the humble pie I've really had to eat in my healing journey, is I really was righteous. Mm. I really thought that I had the only way we'd meet people who were successful in the world. Like, if I had met you, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I would have wanted to connect with you and wanted to recruit you and think that you were doing good things, but that you really were limited mm-hmm. because you weren't getting to the root cause. And mm-hmm. only we got to the root cause. You were just putting Band-Aids on things. Mm-hmm. I thought that about everybody. Interesting. That they didn't know what we know. In that way, you were a missionary. I mean, that's, yes. that's what it was, right? proselytizing. <laughs> yes. That's what it was. Always it was proselytizing. proselytizing. Yeah. Always mm-hmm. proselytizing. Yeah. And that's like... <laughs> The biggest freedom for me is to just to meet people now and just to like be interested in them mm-hmm. and not think about what I wonder if they'd be more of a Jeunesse person or an ESP person. Like trying to think about what you Correct. know what mm-hmm. was wrong mm-hmm. in their life that I could then show them a way out. Right, which is a precarious way to go through the world. Yes. And before we talk about DOS, I want to you know sort of set up that piece of Nancy Salzman, her daughter mm-hmm. Lauren Salzman. Yeah. Okay. They were very powerful people in Nexium. One yeah. could argue that Nancy was Keith's right-hand person, yeah. right? And was the mother to Lauren Saltzman. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Nancy was older than Keith. Lauren was her daughter, younger, and apparently brought into the organization in, in when she was 18. And mm-hmm. you and Lauren became very, very close. Yeah. And I think Lauren, it's important just for us to articulate mm-hmm. that she was incredibly close to her. You wanted to be in her good graces. like you. Yeah. It was important to you, and you did build a friendship. And then I think that really sets us up to talk about DOS because yeah. what does DOS stand for? Do- Dominus Obsequium. I can never even remember. Ser- 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 Dominus Obsequious Sororium, which we Sororium. Were, Sororium. Yeah, which all of the names that we've since found out is his own personal kind of joke as well. Like DOS, he's a computer nerd from the 80s. Right. Right. So that's it's multiple meanings. But let me just to backtrack for a second about Lauren. I thought that we were close. And mm-hmm. now I know there's this whole part. I always felt that there's a part of her life I couldn't really, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. connect with her. And now I know why. But ultimately, when you look at how everyone was so adoring to Keith and how they worshipped him, I probably more was like that with Nancy and Lauren. I totally had them both on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And Lauren and Nancy were, they were my guiding light for who I wanted to be. And this was like baked into the curriculum. There would always be things like, you know, who, who, who has the traits that you wish you could have and what are those traits and, you know, nurturing and, and helps others and all the things that I was, now I know, projecting myself and my own values onto them, but they, I thought, were my guiding principles. Mm-hmm. And so when, when somebody like Lauren, who, by the way, is also the head of education, so any promotion, anytime you're going to grow up the straight path has to go through her. She's, mm-hmm. she's the guardian of those gates. So she's head of education. She's also who I trusted with all my personal stuff, anything that was going on in my marriage, she knew me better probably than anyone. I didn't know she was reporting to Keith, but I found that out later. My session with Sarah will continue after this break. 
So you and Lauren are very close. She has a lot of decision-making power in the organization, especially about how people advance. And she approached you about something new. Can you tell us how she approached you and how all of that unfolded? Because this was definitely the turning point. This was the turning point. This would be January of 2017. And she came out to Vancouver to, to train a five-day, which at her level was a very rare thing. That would only happen if I had what we called VIPs, like some famous entrepreneur or actor, then somebody like Lauren or Nancy might train that that five-day. So the fact that she was coming out was exciting. I didn't really know why. But when she got to Vancouver, she said to me that she wanted to talk to me about something. My first thought was that I was in trouble because that's normally how it started. And I was like, going to get some feedback or something. And she's like, no, no, I want to I tell you about something. And then when we finally had a moment to ourselves, she asked me how committed I was to my growth. And I said, very committed. And keep in mind, this is at a time when I was feeling a little stuck, right? And, and disconnected from the community and I'm focusing on my family, but not ready to pull out. My shelf hadn't broken yet. And she said, what are you willing to do for your growth? And I said something very similar to what... I found out Lauren said to Keith in The Vow, the episode that focuses on her, I realized that she'd said to me pretty much what Keith said to her, setting her up to basically agree to do anything for her growth. Mm. She did that to me. And then she said she wanted to invite me to something, and she got very excited. She said she wanted to invite me to something that had helped her more than anything that she'd ever done, including anything in Nexium. And before I could hear about it, I had to give her collateral to make sure that I kept my word or kept the secrecy around what she was going to tell me. Can you explain what collateral is? Sure. And listen, I understand going back to your very first comment of people saying like, why would people do that? Why would why would she say yes to that? Why would she give collateral? Collateral had been normalized, had been a part of the curriculum since 2012, mm-hmm. where people had started to use collateral as we were taught as a weight to our word. Mm-hmm. So if I said, I'm going to go to the gym and I don't, my collateral, something I'd put on the table say maybe I'm going to give like $500 to charity or something like that. So there was like a weight to my commitment. Right. So it's not like like a swear jar. Yeah. Like I'm Mm going to put a dollar in a jar every time I say the F word, in which case I'd probably just drop a 20 in and let it rip. That's Mm -hmm. not a high stake. You're saying like, I don't go to the gym. It's $500, $1,000. So much so that you'd say, oh, okay, I yes. am not, not going to do this. Okay, so it's yeah. it's a big buy-in. But it's a big buy-in. So it was money. It, it was, it was, sometimes it was money. Sometimes, and then there was another concept introduced called penance, which I didn't realize because I wasn't raised religious that this is a religious concept. So people were doing things like they collateralized their word with a penance like having cold showers for a week or waking up at 3 a.m. and doing burpees in the snow. Like okay. some, some painful thing. One thing we talked about a lot in Axiom is there's a choice point. Like Mm -hmm. in the choice between staying in bed and being comfortable or getting up and doing what you say you're going to do. In that choice point, you have to weigh, and Nancy says this in The Vow, there's the ideology of who you are versus the comfort of your body. Mm -hmm. And that's the struggle. So the the idea was the collateral would motivate you out of the discomfort to do the right thing. So when she's saying, when, when Lauren is saying, I need you to collateralize this new thing I want you to do, was it money? Money was not an option. I'm like, what? Like, what? And she's like, oh, you know, like a nude photo or written confessional. Or I opted with written confessional okay. <laughs> as my first collateral. So I, had to, I wrote, I, Sarah Edmondson, in my 20s, blah, 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 disclosed a bunch of things that, like, I wouldn't want to be public. Mm-hmm. And she took a photo of it. She sent it to somebody and then said, it's not bad enough. Mm. 
And I said, I don't, I don't have a like. I'm, I've, I've been a good girl. Like mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I've dabbled in some recreational drugs and mm-hmm. you know, experimented with certain things. But I, I had to make it worse. So I, I exaggerated all the things and said things that weren't true, in a written statement that she held, and that was enough collateral for me to be invited into DOS. What's done with the collateral? I understand that <sighs> I, I don't know. go to the gym. Mm-hmm. I have to pay $1,000, okay? That's yeah. me accountable to me in some really intense, mm-hmm. over-the-top way. Yeah. But now they have, it could be a naked picture. It yeah. could be a, a confession. What is the implication of what's going to be done with that collateral? Well, this is where, this is the problem with everything that's happened since and people being loyal and and even in the case is that they said, we're just going to hold this. We're holding this to me for you, for you and your word. But if you don't, <laughs> obviously the, the implication there is if you don't hold your vow of secrecy, that will be released. What's the point of giving collateral or giving something to for somebody to hold to maintain a secret if that's the threat of release isn't the holding it there. Like, otherwise, why take it? So it's coercion. Right. So yes. collateral is coercion. Yes. Okay. Yeah. From now on, we can call it coercion or blackmail. But All right. It, yeah, exactly. Yes. It's extortion. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's extortion, it's coercion. But what's happening is, though, it's an agreement. Like, your blackmail is almost like an after the fact. Yeah. But they're saying from the jump, you're going to give us this yeah. thing that we're going to imprison you with. Yes. And so it's making it look like I agreed to that. Yes, right? exactly. So I'm saying you can hold this to help me keep my word that I'm never going to release this information. Okay. Because I trust you so much mm-hmm. as my mm-hmm. friends. Like, the example that the loyalists give now is I'm saying, like, I have trouble drinking and driving. Can you hold my keys? That's, <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you for help here. So that's, that's, that's the metaphor, which doesn't make sense, but that's how they see it. Mm-hmm. The concept of collateral, the way Lauren framed it for this DOS group, was in essence an attempt to make someone a collaborator in their own extortion. It is a very transparent, in-your-face form of manipulation that would result in a sense of self-blame and coercion. It means that after this collateral is gathered, that none of the behavior that follows it, nor is the giving of the collateral consensual, people will obey whatever the demands of DOS are, not from a place of consent, but from a place of coercion, with the fear that my collateral could be made public. This form of psychological exploitation and manipulation is a severe form of emotional abuse. So that's the first step. And from that point, she invites me into DOS. So you've done your collateral, you've given it, you've made your confession story. I made my confession story. I loved wasn't entirely true, as it makes me <laughs> respect you even more. And then it meets some standard. I made a standard, and then she invites me into, into DOS. Mm-hmm. And she lays out the points, the first one being that it's a vow of obedience. And so I'm vowing to be obedient to her. And to I'm, her? To her, as my master. This is a master-slave relationship, which obviously my <laughs> all the alarm bells are going off. The biggest red flags I've ever had my entire time. And she's saying, that's good. That means you're doing it right. Like, this is supposed to be really uncomfortable because it's a big commitment. You should feel uncomfortable. Like, what I'm asking of you is a lot. And it's not for everybody. When this concept of master and slave, like, to me, slave is like, it is a lightning rod word. You oh, know, it is the, it's the, it is the worst experience of dehumanization yeah. and, and degradation, right? And even in the, in the curriculum, we talk about how slavery is bad and people should have the right, the products of their own efforts. And now we're using this word and I'm questioning this. At this point, I feel like nothing you're doing, you're consenting to mm-hmm. because there's so much manipulation yeah. happening. And 
I'm going to talk about consent, Mm -hmm. because this idea of you consented to give this collateral, Mm. was this because you inherently trusted Lauren? Yeah, absolutely. If Alison Mack had asked me this, Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't even have Mm -hmm. said yes. I didn't Mm -hmm. respect her in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And none of the women, actually, except for Lauren. Wow. Okay, so they knew what they were doing. They They sent you to be pulled in by, okay. And that uh, that also later I found out was done with, like, oh, Sarah should be the one to invite this person. No, no, like there there were very strategic about who was invited and by who. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. now you are in this group. She is using terminology like master and slave with mm. a straight face. Yes. She's doing this. But also, like, do you remember when I talked about how people taught rules and rituals and they'd be like, well, so, you know, there's the martial yeah. arts and it was the same thing. Mm. Lauren was the best at teaching that module and she was the best at doing this because she was like, you know, it's not really a master slave because you're in Vancouver and I'm in Albany. It's like a guru disciple. Think of it as a heightened coaching, coaching relationship. Okay. So that was my hook. That was my main reason for saying yes is because Lauren is now offering to personally mentor me. Mm, Even mm. though we're close, it was very hard to get her time. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I had to pay her. It was three twenty-five dollars an EM. Well, that was her rate. Or three seventy-five, dollars with three-something. So if I had wanted an EM from her, and she's the only one of the only people I EM'd with, mm-hmm. that was very expensive. Now she's saying she's going to personally mentor me. I call it, call it whatever you want. I'm master slave. Sure, I'll be your slave. What do you want me to do? Bring your mm-hmm. granola? Okay. <laughs> like, right. I had no idea how serious it was. It was it was an exercise that she was mentoring me, taking me under her wing, and we're going to call it master slave. Okay, so how did this play out? What did it mean to be her slave, other than having to give her a lot of money to do these EMs, these explorations well, that was of before. meanings? Oh, that was I, even before. No, I, I paid her before. Like, when I, okay. in, in the context of the of the structure of Nexium, I would pay to get an EM from okay. her. Okay. But right. getting one-on-one time with her, even in trainings when I moved, went to Albany, like, maybe I could carve out a quick coffee break. Like, mm-hmm. she was always so busy. So the fact that she's offering to mentor me on a date and check in with me daily, I'm down. Oh, okay. Right. Here are my takeaways from this conversation with Sarah. First, Sarah was very clear that there were both healthy and unhealthy aspects of herself that drew her into the situation and dynamics at ESP and Nexium. And this is why it is all so complicated. The challenge with any narcissistic situation is that there are elements that can be quite compelling and that even play upon healthy parts of ourselves. And yet, simultaneously, neurotic fears such as not being good enough, wanting to fit in, can also lead us to shape ourselves to fit these situations. We often want it to be simple, that people get into this merely because of the unhealthy and neurotic parts of themselves. It's not that simple. In my next takeaway, I had a rueful moment when Sarah called this the golden age of cult awareness. I think that's because it parallels what we are entering as the golden age of narcissism awareness. She's right. Never before have I seen so much content, movies, streaming shows on cults and cult-like organizations. However, knowledge, while important, is not enough. This golden age needs to be a wake-up call for people to do the deeper dive to recognize the patterns, universal and personal vulnerabilities to these patterns, and to stop falling into self-doubt and disavowal of intuition at these times. In individual relationships, this is hard enough. 
In a cult, it can be downright impossible since there are so many people aligned with the distorted and manipulative behavior. The world still is drawn to the magnetic cults of personality. We have to be willing to pull back the veil and recognize that the emperor is not only wearing any clothes, he may also be speaking in word salad. In this next takeaway, self-improvement organizations of all kinds raise concerns about communal narcissism, that a leader may be getting validation just by holding on to the grandiose vision that they are changing the world and actually having that grandiosity be emboldened by students and followers who become devotees instead of collaborators. Anytime a person enters a community singularly identified with an enigmatic leader who has been imbued with supposed virtues like genius, the safest play may be to walk away. But if curiosity gets the best of you, then at least make sure you know where the exits are and maintain strong ties to people outside of the organization. It's quite clear that Sarah's pregnancy and then baby gave her something bigger than Nexium and ESP to focus on, and that may very well have saved her. In our last takeaway from part one, Sarah had a fascinating observation. She said that within Nexium, that self-care was viewed as indulgent. That's not an uncommon technique used by antagonistic and narcissistic people to control a partner, family member, or group member. One thing we know is that people in narcissistic relationships are notorious for their lack of self-care, often neglecting medical care, rest, other healthy routines, or pleasurable interludes like getting a massage or sleeping in. Self-flagellation by collateralizing discomfort, making people exercise in the snow, waking up at all hours, is a way to create a sort of trauma-bonded buy-in. In every narcissistic relationship I have ever witnessed, shaming of self-care was a common theme. At the end of this episode, Sarah's faith in the organization and in her relationships with some of the folks she most admires in Nexium, such as Lauren Saltzman, are being tested and significant doubt has crept in. However, her belief in Lauren and the center Sarah has created in Vancouver matter to her. So as she is being pulled into the shadowy world of DOS, Sarah clearly recognizes that something is not right, but years of being indoctrinated into the social control and manipulation of the organization makes all of this very confusing. Stay tuned for our next episode when Sarah shares how it all fell apart. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.